I'm going to ask you, uh, good morning to you again, to turn in your Bibles or to turn on your Bibles and go to Psalm 115. The title of this sermon is simply called Glory. Psalm 15 is one of my favorite psalms uh, to to share with people and to, to preach on as well. Um, and um, this is a, kind of what the purpose of this sermon is a, is a, is a bit of a placeholder as um, at the start of the new year, I'm kind of wavering between going back to Ezekiel, which we will return to Ezekiel eventually, uh, but that we might, we might do a brief kind of excursus in, in Deuteronomy 6, uh, talking about uh, worshiping together as uh, families and as brothers and sisters, uh, things like uh, some of the things that, that Daniel Moore is going to be talking about, uh, the practice of private devotion, as well as the practice of family worship together. Uh, wanting to explore some of those things with you, and since January, as I said, is often a time for new beginnings, I figured why not use that time to talk about uh, worshiping together then, but for now, we are in Psalm 115, and as, as I said, the name of the sermon is Glory, and I'm sorry, Burley, if you could jump back, I just want to brag for a second that that picture is a picture that I took while Marissa and I were in Missouri. Uh, in the Ozarks, and it's absolutely beautiful. Um, as I, you know, you can be a real uh, awful photographer with a shaky hand and all of that. And uh, and the the glory that God has given in creation can make up for a lot of uh, shaky hands. Uh, and so, with that, let's proceed to Psalm 115. And listen to this: Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name, give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness, why should the nation say, where is their God? Here's the answer. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. You who fear Yahweh, trust in Yahweh. He is their help and shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and And the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And so we say together. Thanks be to God. So Psalm 115, as I said, it's, it is one of my favorites. And there's, um, there's a lot of ground I'd love to cover, but I'm going to, I'm going to cover some abbreviated parts of it. Uh, so we'll spend more time in some parts than the other. But I'm going to tell you that there are three things, at least three things, I want you to take special notice of this morning. And that is that this psalm revolves around the idea of glory and who gets it. And so uh, at least three things we see is that this glory has a purpose, that this glory, that this glory involves a problem, 
And this glory involves a promise. So a glory purpose, a problem, and a purpose. And so we'll start then uh, with the purpose. We'll read verse 1 again. Not to us, O Yahweh, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. I wonder, I bet, uh, we're not going to put it up on the screen, but I bet a lot of you could rattle off. If I said, what is the chief end of man? Okay, you didn't know there was going to be a little quiz this morning. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's right. That's from our catechism. And that is your glory purpose, if I can put it that way, in this life. You exist to glorify God. And the psalmist begins, not to us, O Lord, not to us, he repeats it, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. This first verse reveals something that is actually stated throughout the Bible. It points back to a reality emphasized throughout Scripture. Why do you exist? To glorify God. Romans 11.36 is an example of this. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And if, if, if you missed it, you are part of that all things. Okay? Human beings are a subset of all things. Revelation 4.11, the praises of God that go up in the heavenlies. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things. By your will, they existed and were created. Now, what does this word mean, glory? It is a fancy theological word that we use a lot, but what does it mean to glorify God? Let me try and start with this answer. At the most basic fundamental level, glorifying God means making God look good. Okay? Now that is not saying that God doesn't look good and needs your help to fix that. Okay? If the goal was to make Pastor Brian look good, that'd be a perfectly fit way of explaining it. He's got a lot of work to do and he needs a lot of help. Okay? But the Lord is not in need of your help, but glorifying God, maybe a better way to put it, would be revealing the glory that's already there. So it is unfortunate, I think, that sometimes when people talk about glorifying God, that's almost the message they can send. Probably not intentionally. But they think of glorifying God, I I borrow this from John Piper, as like uh, uh, God is like a poor little ant, and he needs your magnifying glass, not the bad kind with ants and magnifying glasses, but... But, but uh, a tiny ant that you can't see, so you need a magnifying glass in order to see it, right? So that's magnifying or glorifying the ant. Not that kind of magnifying, not that kind of glorifying. We, we have a word for that. That's called blasphemy, right? God is so small and needs my help to be made bigger and more grand than he actually is. That's not what we're talking about. A better metaphor would be more like a telescope, right? So... so Jupiter, in all of its massive majesty and glory, many miles away, cannot be properly observed. So you need a telescope just to catch a glimpse of the grandeur and glory of it. That's a better analogy. And so glorifying God, the reason why you're here, means making God's existence and his attributes, that just means things about him, more visible, to those who can't see him. 
There's one moment in the New Testament where Paul, when he's in prison, says that he's filling up what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Which at first sounds, again, almost blasphemous, doesn't it? I'm filling up what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ. How can anything be lacking in Christ? Well, what he's saying is that what's lacking is that Jesus has wounds and you can't see them, right? So Paul says, if you want to get a look at someone who's suffering and has wounds, come and visit me in prison and I'll fill up that knowledge gap for you. And so he says, I'm, I'm filling up what's lacking, namely that you can't see it. And so perhaps another, another way of thinking about it would be if you were in an art museum and you're looking at the uh, you know, beautiful paintings and the lights go out. And, you know, so a brief panic and the, the curators run and find the, the fuse box or whatever and, and flip it and, and everything gets worked out. Lights come back on. You wouldn't say, oh, thank you so much for making the paintings beautiful. They're finally beautiful, right? Now that the lights are on. The curator would say, well, I didn't make it beautiful. I only enabled you to see the beauty that was already there. That's what glorifying God is like. And so the first thing I want you to take away from this, from this, from this text and others like it, is that the glory of God seems to be really important to God and that he's created you for a purpose, namely to glorify him. The second point is that there's a glory problem, which is your heart and my heart tends to glorify just about anything else. We have a problem then that our purpose is to glorify God, but we don't. One reason we don't is that we don't see God by ourselves, right? Look at verses 2 and 3 in Psalm 115. Why should the nation say, where is their God? And then you see the answer. Our God is in the heavens. He does all he pleases. So the nations around Israel are saying, where is this God of yours? Show us a God we can see. So you think, as in the idols that the nations around them were worshiping, were were gods that they could see and and touch and recognize. And so in this way, Israel's God was very unique. Not only was he not visually represented by an idol, but he actually commands his people, you will not make visual representations of me. Second commandment, right? And so the nations, the Gentiles ask, where is this God of yours? We don't see him. Answer, he is in the heavens. Thank you for asking. He does all he pleases. Now that's interesting. Because there are two ways in this, in this text that Israel's God is mocked. The first one is they want to see him with their eyes. Where is he? The second one is they want to see that he's powerful. What can he do? And so the answer is he, location, he's in the heavens. Power, he does whatever he wants. So you see the accusation of where is your God is not only we can't see him, but it can also be read as it doesn't seem that he's very strong or very powerful. And I think if we are honest, we have felt that way sometimes, whether it's because suffering enters your life or the world around you just looks really chaotic and scary. You start to ask the question from time to time. Much like the psalmist in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget us forever? We, we know that you're strong, that you, that you are over everything, that you govern everything, right? All, all the things that happen, all your creatures, we, we know that in our heads. When we look around with our eyes, 
we struggle with the contrast. And so in the face of that, the psalmist is asserting, our God is not disconnected from this world, and he's not too weak. He's not weak at all. He's in the heavens and he does all he pleases. And so the temptation to idolatry is that, I mean, start with, we can't see God, so we're tempted to believe he's not at work. And what will that do to us? We'll look at verses 4 through 8. Their idols, the idols of the nation, are silver and gold. The work of human hands. So let's learn about these gods, so-called, shall we? They have mouths but do not speak. Eyes but do not see, right? And, I mean, take that very literally. If you walk up to a statue of a pagan god, if it starts talking to you, call a doctor. Okay? It's not going to start talking to you. They have mouths but don't speak. Eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Noses but do not smell. Hands but do not feel. Feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. And then this is the clincher, verse 8. Those who make them become like them. Right? The, the deaf, dumb idols that can't talk, can't see, can't hear. That's the spiritual state of idol worshipers. So do all who trust in them, the text says. So you see, idolatry then, what the psalmist is doing is he's kind of pulling back the curtain, as it were, to say idolatry is the root cause of why you're asking these questions and not, quote unquote, seeing the God of the universe. Now, let me make something clear. I, when we use the word idolatry, please don't, if, if your mind automatically goes to bowing down in front of a statue and you think that's all idolatry can mean, biblically speaking, with all gentleness, please don't be so naive. The biblical concept of idolatry it is certainly manifested in the bowing down in front of a statue, but um, that's, that's a tiny representation or manifestation of how idolatry works and what it is. The practice is giving worship to something made with human hands. Something that we made that can give us what we want, that we can control. Because the images and statues were instruments in biblical times, instruments of satisfying particular desires. And that's the root of idolatry. An idol is the thing that in your life that you believe is most fundamental and consequential to your happiness. So let me ask you this morning two questions for your reflection. What thing, if you lost it, could almost mean that you would lose the will to live? What thing, if you lost it, would mean life is no longer worth living? And then second, what thing do you believe, I, I don't have it, but if I only had it, then my life would be full. I would finally be happy and okay and safe. Generally speaking, those are kind of idle detection questions you can use for your heart. So again, what, what is the thing that if you lost would mean life is worthless? And, or what is the thing that if you gained would mean life finally has worth? And generally speaking, there are about four common idols that tend us to draw, away, draw us away from God. Okay, and, and there are other examples, but I think you could probably connect them to one of these four. Control, approval, comfort, and power. Okay? So control, there's a control idolatry, approval idolatry, comfort idolatry, and power idolatry. 
And so how do you know kind of what your heart is wrestling with? Well, if it's a control idol, your greatest nightmare is uncertainty. So uncertainty about the future. What's going to happen next? Might have a control idol. Approval. If your greatest nightmare is rejection or disappointing people, could be an approval idol in your heart. Comfort. If your greatest nightmare is being stressed and having lots of demands on you, might be an idolatry of comfort or power. If your greatest nightmare is being made low or being humiliated. So here's what you need to know about idolatry. Idols don't love you. Idols won't love you back. False gods don't love and they never keep their promises. Anything you worship and build your life on other than God, here's what it's going to have in common, what they have in common with one another. They will suck the life out of you over time and slowly destroy you. And a fundamental part of following Jesus is identifying the ways you are tempted to idolatry, because it's probably going to look a little different than your neighbor. What you're going to notice is that you're a lot better at spotting your neighbor's idolatry than you are yours, especially people in your family. Oh, my goodness. You have 20-20 vision when it comes to the idolatry in your family. And so you begin to notice when you read the Gospels that Jesus is always doing this with people during his ministry. He's constantly identifying and challenging idols calling people to turn away from whatever's captivated their heart. So a good example would be Mark chapter 10. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. I'll go there now. So in the gospel of Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, we meet this rich young man, sometimes called the rich young ruler. And so this man comes up and kneels before Jesus and he asks him, good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. In other words, way to butter me up, do you know who you're talking to? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. So Jesus, using what has always been for God's people, a kind of 101 in God's will for your life, i.e. the Ten Commandments, says, let's walk through them and see how you're doing. And he says to them something that kind of blows your mind a little. He says, all of these, teacher, I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. Why? For he had great possessions. You see what Jesus did? Jesus had the wisdom to know that the fellow's pride over his law-keeping wasn't going to get anywhere. He had to get at the heart of his idolatry, which had to do with money. Uh, We see another example of this in Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, Jesus addresses uh, a few different groups of people, actually. Uh, And so beginning in verse 10. Let me see here. The crowds asked him, asked Jesus, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. So, So the crowd, all different sorts of people... Ask him this broad open question, uh, what, what shall we do? And he basically says, love your neighbor, right? 
So, so love your neighbor. If you've, if you've got enough to share with your neighbor, if you can help your neighbor, do so. But then we go from this broad crowd to more specific answers. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said, teacher, did I say Jesus earlier? I'm sorry, this is John the Baptist. Uh, Tax collectors came to him and said, teacher, what shall we do? And what does John say? Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Okay, so he gives them specific application. It's still love your neighbor, but now it's how a tax collector loves his neighbor. Then soldiers came up to him. What shall we do? And he said, quit the military. That's a sin. Oh, wait, no, he didn't say that. He said, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. Be content with your wages. Sounds like he's addressing what would be particularly tempting for a Roman soldier, a way to abuse his power. So you see, you have this broad love your neighbor. And then in specific cases, Jesus, uh, John basically says, based on your vocation and what you do, love your neighbor with that. And so I don't wonder if the reason why we observe a lot of shallow Christianity is because a lot of people don't deal with the idolatry that confronts their heart in their peculiar particular situation. It's very common that for, uh, for American Christians to think uh, that freedom is found in casting off all restraints and being master of our own lives. And so it's going to tend to be the case for you and I in our context that we are blind to the reality that everyone has a master. We all worship something. And whatever we worship is what's calling the shots in our life. And th- the thing is, idols make really horrible masters. They enslave. That's why those who make them become like them. That's the idea. Enslavement is what follows idolatry. In, uh, some of you might be familiar with C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, which is this fictional account between two demons about how to tempt humans. And at one point, Screwtape tells Wormwood, his, his nephew, the younger demon, the goal is to give these humans an ever-increasing desire for an ever-diminishing pleasure which any addict can tell you what that, what that experience is like, an ever-increasing desire for an ever-diminishing pleasure. And so it is that that's the way idolatry tends to take shape. And you will feel enslaved and secure and unhappy, and you probably won't know why until you discover that you are enslaved to a rather unforgiving master. And so the message that I give to you this morning is that Jesus Christ is the one who will love you even when you fail him. Your idols won't do that. Jesus is the master who loved you when you were at your worst and died for you then and who reigns over the world with perfect wisdom, perfect power, perfect goodness. He is the one you can actually trust. So how do you identify idols? First, know that they can be and usually are good things. They're not obviously bad things. Uh, Second, just a quick diagnosis question. What do you daydream about? When your mind is free to wander, uh, wander, excuse me, what, what sort of images or scenarios pop into your head? What do you picture as the thing that's ultimately going to bring you a lot of happiness and joy and comfort and rest and so on? Third, what makes you angry? What is it that, that when, when it happens in your life, you get angry because what's often going on then is your idols get threatened, right? So if I'm, 
If I'm running late, I'm going somewhere, and perhaps I'm stuck in traffic, and I start getting really angry. Why? That's my approval idol that's at risk. Okay? In my heart, I've got this little approval idol that wants your approval and everybody's approval, and if I'm late, how is that going to look? Right? Or if, uh, if, if I'm disappointed by something, so... Pardon me, dear, I'll, I'll use an example. If, if, if Marissa does something that angers me or disappoints me, and I really let it slow cook in my brain, right? Which is what you must not do, beloved. What's happening there? Well, Marissa's threatening my idol. Because I'm telling myself a story about how I married a perfect person. And they're going to make my life easy and carefree. And, and, you know, and, and as, soon as, I, as soon as I get this reminder that I'm married to another sinner, like, like me, just not as bad... <laughs> When that gets threatened, when that idol gets threatened, like I can, I can get mad. Because why? Well, uh, if you'll forgive me, mess with the golden calf and you get the horns. Like, if you mess with someone's idol, they will rage at you. And so we began with the purpose of life, which is to give God glory. But we've got this problem that we always pursue glory from, from our idols. The third, then, is a glory promise. You will only ever glorify what you love. That's the trick. You'll only actually glorify what you love. You will only ever glorify what you love. It's, love is the kind of deepest root of your heart. It's, it's why Jesus calls us most fundamentally, right, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And you already love yourself, by the way. And I, so I have really good news for you today. If you want to do that, if you want to love well, the good news is Love is a cultivated habit, not a feeling you can't control. That's really good news. Like somebody should be like, yay, I'm so excited to hear that. But I'm sure you'll do it on the way home. All right. It's, it's cultivated. This is like an undiscovered secret that love is cultivated because we are, all of us, all of you are romantic Westerners. You're, you're romantics. And if you think you're not a romantic, especially guys... I'm here to tell you you are, and I don't mean that you're like soft or effeminate or you've watched too many chick flicks. I mean that you are a romantic in the philosophical sense. You've been catechized by romanticism, and romanticism has taught us all to believe that our feelings and our impulses are unalterable revelations of authenticity and truth. And so if we can put this into catechism language, like a pretend uh, uh, romanticism catechism right first question would be what is love and the answer would be love is the power powerful emotional overflow of all your deepest desires personal delights and unbidden impulses the truth is that's only one form of love it gets some treatment in the bible song of solomon and in places in the proverbs but most descriptions of love in the bible are how to describe it far more rooted than that, far more complex. And honestly, they take far more work and action and intention. The sort of things that are not produced without some effort, regardless of feelings. And so let's return to our psalm. I know it's been a minute. What does the psalmist do, Psalm 115, after announcing this problem of idolatry and dead idols and where it leads, those who make them become like them? He starts singing to his hearers and tells them to trust in the Lord. If you'll go to verse 9. 
So right, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. And then he just breaks out into song. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Oh, house of Aaron, the Levites, the priests, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Anyone else, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Do you get the sense he's being a bit repetitive? Trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord. Why? He's your help and your shield. It's, it's a sensory psalm, if I can put it that way. Because in verses 4 through 7, we hear about these idols who can't talk and can't hear and can't feel and so on. So think five senses. And what does the psalmist then do with that idea? He says, what you do, Israel, what you do, people of God, with your five senses is different if you don't want to end up like these dumb idols. So we get a visual aid for the ears, for the eyes. We've got repetition, the words in front of our eyes. Make use of your mind and imagination. Open your ears to hear this repetition. And if you need to know what God is like, make sure you know he's not spiteful and stingy. He comes with blessings. The Lord has remembered us and he will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. He comes with blessing. What kind of blessing? Well, one example is children. Verse 14, may the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. Parents, is there anything? Closer to your heart than your kids. In other words, God's answer to idolatry is to remind you what sort of God he is. Not the God who is absent, right? The nations are saying, where is their God? I'll tell you where he is, in the heavens, doing all he pleases, but he's not far away. He's your help and your shield, right? Right next to you, defending you from all the fiery darts of the evil one. Defending you from the accusations, defending you from the fears that are associated with your idolatries of approval and control and all those kinds of things. And what does he direct you to do? To look up at the sky, verse 16. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he's given to the children of men. Directs you to look up at the sky, to remember that your God is in control, which is precisely the thing you doubt when you're tempted to idols and when life gets hard. And he says, look up and then look down, verse uh, 16. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth, so look up and then look down, he's given to the children of men, keep staring at the ground where we bury the dead. Verse 17, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. So he tells you to look up, then he tells you to look down. And while you're staring at the dirt, where you will be someday, remember that the dead don't praise the Lord, the living do on earth. So that's you, so get going. Start praising. Why? Why? Because you have breath in your lungs, and that is what human beings do, verse 18. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Right? So looking up in the heavens, that's where God is. Looking down at the earth... That's, we're not hearing anything coming from below, so right in the middle is us, and as long as we have breath, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. You see, in response to idolatry 
and the temptations of the nations, God gives his people words to sing, to put in their ears, to put in their hearts, to put in their minds, so that they do what with them? So they keep on repeating them. You caught the repetition. To keep repeating them, which, by the way, is not always going to feel like the romantic comedy, easy, effortless sort of love. It's going to be work sometimes. It might even feel mechanical at first. (gasps) Yes, quoting God's promises to yourself might sometimes feel mechanical. It might feel mechanical when you come in here and you responsively read that call to worship while you're preaching to each other the glories of God. It might. It might for a season feel that way. You know what else feels really mechanical? When you're learning how to dance, right? So somebody's teaching you the steps and you're, you know, okay, foot goes there, foot, okay, now goes there. And then you step on their foot. If you're, if you're like me, you step on her foot while she, yeah. Okay? Learning to dance feels very mechanical. It doesn't feel natural. It doesn't feel romantic. It doesn't just feel like the overflow of what I think I ought to do. But you got to learn the steps so that one day you can simply dance. But we are such romantic fools. We think we should just be able to dance by impulse if we're spiritual enough. If we can't do that, well then dancing must not be real. (laughs) What? Here's the good news. You don't worship a God of stone and wood. You worship a God who changes you with his words, with his promises, with his sacraments, with his realities. Trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord, help and shield, help and shield, take and eat and believe, be forgiven. He will bless, he will bless, not just us, but our children as well. So do you have breath? Congratulations, that's meant for praising God. You're not dead yet, you're not in the ground yet, where you will go and praise forever. Breath is meant for praising God, for preaching to yourself and for the person next to you. And so you begin to see what it is God has done. He's made, us, he's made us people who, who in our natural state long for delight and for pleasures and for the, the glory and richness of life, which I hope you experienced you know, yesterday and perhaps the day before where it's just, it's just riches slabbed on top of riches slabbed on top of riches and now you need to go take a nap, right? One of the joys of feasting together. Now think for a moment about what God has done. He's made us beings who chase after delight. There's really no question about that. We pursue pleasure, we pursue delight. And then he has declared himself to be the most delightful thing in the universe. And there's this whole book of Psalms, right, in the middle of your Bible. It's God saying, praise me, praise me, praise me, page after page. A bit egotistical, no? Well, it would be if he wasn't the most delightful thing in the universe. If, that's not a, if, if that is in fact the, what you were made most fundamentally to do, then he's just being a good God. He knows that's where our greatest delight and satisfaction can be found. And I quote Lewis again. He says, your desires are not too strong. Our problem is not that our desires are too strong. They're too weak and pathetic. You're starved for glory. 
And so come and learn to speak the language God has given you, the language of praise, his language of love and love for one another. Husbands, love for your wives, wives, love for your husbands and loving one another in the church and in the body. And you know what? It's going to feel mechanical sometimes. But God's going to teach you how to dance. He will bring you to your spouse and teach you how to love if you have forgotten. He'll bring you to your family and teach you how to love and maybe sometimes to put up with. He'll bring you to your church and teach you how to be patient, how to be generous. He'll bring you into worship and he'll teach you how to sing. He'll bring you to the cross of his dear son, Jesus Christ. He'll meet you at his table. And he will teach you what this means. Your sins are forgiven. And indeed, he will teach you how to rejoice in this for as long as you have breath. Trust in the Lord, dear saints, for he is our help and our shield. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Father, teach us how to love, how to worship, how to sing your praises with refreshed hearts, how to proclaim your glories to our own hearts and to the hearts of our neighbors, to the hearts of our families, to the hearts of our friends, co-workers, neighbors. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. So let it be said of us that we might drink full of the delights of your word and your promises, which are in fact for us forever. In Jesus' name. Amen.